Well, uh, one of the first things I love to do uh, when I wake up, probably like you, I have a little, little bit of a routine, and I, I get out of bed, and I walk down the hallway, I go to the kitchen cabinet, I grab a coffee cup, and I wait for my coffee to brew. And, and while I wait for my coffee to brew, I always open up my app on my phone, which is tied to the speakers in my house, and I always, you know, based on every how I feel that morning, I start playing some music. Uh, in the house as we get ready to get everybody to go to school and everybody's getting ready to go to work and do all those things. Uh, that's the first thing I do every day because for me, when it comes to music, everyday normal things get just a little bit better when you put music with it. So I love music in the background when I read, when I get up in the morning and read my Bible or read a devotion book. I, I love music in the background. I, I love background music when I work here at the church in the office with our staff. I, I love background music when I cook. You know, some people hate cooking. I love cooking because when I cook, I'll put on a little Sinatra, you know, a little Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, Ella Fitzgerald, and all of a sudden it becomes a party. All of a sudden it is just not a have to. This is, I get to do this and it's like my jam and I love it and it's just wonderful. It just it's just good. Uh, you invite friends over and, you know, friends you love, friends you care about, and you, you, you opt and spend your time with them by choice because you love them and care about them. And I mean, that's good enough, but I mean, you throw a little music in the background of that and it just makes things better. That's how I've always thought about music. And I think in my head, the way my head works, I always want to know, well, why does music make things better? Well, I thought about this and I think that music makes things better, makes things better because it frames the moment. It kind of frames the moment for us and it provides an extra layer and texture to whatever moment that we're in. It shapes the mood, it shapes the tenor of the moment. And music tends to make things better that otherwise wouldn't have been as good without music, which is why Plato, and I've heard he's a pretty smart guy, Plato said this, he said, music gives a soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination and life to everything else. And I think he's saying basically what I've been saying, that music makes things just a little bit better. Now try to imagine for a moment your favorite movie. You know, you got a favorite movie in mind, your favorite television show. Just think of that favorite movie or that favorite television show for just a moment and try to imagine what it would be like without music without any score, without any instrumental, without any lyrics, without any music in the background to frame and amplify the emotion of whatever's happening during that particular scene or during that particular moment. Imagine how one-dimensional the movie would be or how one-dimensional the television show, how benign, how boring, how impotent it would be without music. Now, since it's October the 31st and since it's Halloween in, in the spirit of the day, I want you to think about the greatest Halloween movie of all time. And of course, there's probably lots of debate about this, but everybody else is wrong and I am right. But the greatest Halloween movie of all time is Halloween. Uh, John Carpenter, I mean, it was just an amazing thing uh, that he put together and it's not a Christian movie, but it's a great movie and I don't endorse it, but I'm just telling you, it's great. So uh, you can do with it with what you want. But I, I just want you to think about Halloween for just a moment. And I want you to imagine, I know some of you, you're too holy, you've never seen it before. Some of you are too cautious, you won't watch. That's fine, you're not as sanctified as some of us, but I need you to work with me in this moment, okay? I, I want you to imagine, you know, you kind of got in your mind what a scary movie would be like if you've never seen one. But for those of us who've watched Halloween or all the Halloweens or all the Halloweens two or three times, um, I, I want you to think about it. it. It's dark, right? You got it in your mind. It's dark. It's autumn. It, it's Halloween night. There's jack-o'-lanterns on every front porch. Uh, 
little children are running through the neighborhood and they're trick-or-treating and all of a sudden there's a damsel in distress because there's always a damsel in distress and, and, and we pick up the scene and she's running for her life you know and the prettier they are the worse they are at running for some reason they keep falling down I don't know what it, the ugly ones can run like Olympiads, but I'm telling you, the prettier they are, the less they can run. I mean, it's like they stand up and fall down, stand up and fall down, stand up and fall down. If you're beautiful and you're here today, you need to be careful because if you need to run for your life, it may not work out very well for you. Somebody should study it or something. I I don't know what it is. But anyway, these beautiful women, they keep falling down in the movie. And and Michael Myers, you know, white mask and, you know, the blue hole, you know, kind of Carhartt thing he's got going on there. And and here he is. He's walking as she's running and falling down, running and falling down. And, And he's just walking because... He's very committed to walking, never running. And and even though he's trotting at the speed of a three-legged turtle, he's making ground. She's trying to sprint, but he's getting closer and closer and closer. And then the camera cuts to the knife that's in his hand. And as he's walking and she's falling and standing back up, and you know, we're watching this whole thing play out. and, And admittedly, it's exciting by itself and it's dramatic by itself. But when you add just a little bit of this to it, it goes to a whole other level. Come on, somebody. There he is. He's walking. She's running. No, she fell down. Oh, no, she got back up again. No, she's running. Oh, it's like, you know, something is happening. This is not going to be good. Close the eyes of the children. It's not good. Imagine what that whole thing would be without that. It just brings something to it. It just wouldn't be the same without it because in some way, music just makes Life have a bit more life to it. Now, when it comes to my love for music, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about me today. Uh, when it comes to my love for music, I had no choice. Uh, my entire family that I was raised in, my entire family, they're musical. Uh, they can all sing, they can all play you know, musical instruments. Most of them can play multiple musical instruments. And my family, they just love to play and sing. If somebody in our family's having a baby, there's a group of us out there singing in the hall. Uh, if somebody's dying, there's a group of people out in the hallway singing. I mean, I mean, we can sing you into the world and we can sing you out of the world. I mean, we got our whole thing going on. But I can remember, you know, my dad, you know, he can play the piano, the violin, the banjo, the steel guitar, the lead guitar the acoustic guitar. I mean, he, there's just about nothing that he can't play. And, and I can remember Friday nights, family and friends would come over and after dinner, inevitably somebody would pull out a banjo. And, and then when somebody pull out a banjo, somebody pull out a guitar and here come out another banjo. And then pretty soon there's, you know, wildwood, wildwood flower playing, bluegrass music. Some of you are like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. And, and so it was like a whole thing. And some of you are new to our church. Like, where in the world are you from? I'm from the Southeast corner of the 606, bro. I am from Bell County, KY. And beneath this sophisticated exterior lies a big red neck. And, and that's the world that I came from. And, and so that was like every single weekend my life, there was music at church and music at home. And so it was just all, I just got baptized in it. I can remember when I was in kindergarten and I don't even know why I remember it, but I would get up in the mornings and my mom would have my clothes laid out and I would go through that thing. And I I, I, I remember it. It was just, it seemed like it went all year in kindergarten. My family, my mom and dad in their bedroom, they had this large piece of furniture. I mean, it was gigantic. It was titanic size. It, It was a record player console, but it was like a piece of furniture. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, that sucker could have doubled as the Thanksgiving dinner table. I mean, it was huge. You could have got 12 people around it. And every morning of my kindergarten year, they were playing this record that they had just bought, that they just, you know, had fallen in love with, Alabama. 
Alabama, the closer you get, right? And, and oh, Randy, nice beard, hair, and all that. And, and I remember they would play that music, you know, spend my dollar. Some of you know it. Parked in a holler neath the mountain moonlight, holding her up tight, make a little loving, a little turtle doving on a Mason Dixon night. Now, I will be quick to say, I have no idea what turtle doving on a Mason Dixon night means. I don't even know, only in country can you take a noun, turtle dove, and turn it into a verb, turtle doving. It doesn't seem appropriate. I think they meant praying, doing acts of good deeds. I, I'm not sure what it meant. You know, they pray, play lady down on love. She's a lady down on love. You know, she's got her freedom, but she'd rather be bound to a man who would love her and never let her down. You know, all that. I mean, so I, I, that was my life. And then my parents gave me a gift that every kid growing up in the 80s needed uh, to really get the most out of being part of Generation X. And this is what my parents gave me one year. I mean, that's it. Come on. And if you don't know what this is, I don't have time to catch you up, students. Uh, this, this, all you need to know about this, the louder the boom, the better the box. The louder the boom, the better the box. And so there was a double cassette console. And again, cassette, I don't have time to catch you up. They'll talk about it in history class. But there, there was one side that you could actually put a blank cassette tape in and press record. And you could actually, before, you know, churches talked about pirating and stealing copyright information, you could take somebody's cassette who had actually bought it, and then you could copy it if you'd put a little paper up in there at the top of it. I don't know. I've heard how people did that. I'm not sure. But, but then you could, like, record the whole album and not have to buy it. But if you, you know, you cared about those things, you would, you would just try to wait for the radio station to play the song that you were looking for and, and press record. So, you know, you'd be talking on your Conair phone to all your best friends and, and then you would wait and in the moment you'd hit record or you'd just wait for the weekend, Casey Kasem's American's Top 40 and everything worth hearing was there. So you would just record the whole show and all your favorite artists on one cassette, extended play, obviously, and all the favorite songs right there for you to listen, free of charge. You didn't even have to you know, drop the 12 bucks for the cassette that only had one or two good songs on it. Anyway, uh, how many of y'all had a mixtape once upon a time? Oh, lift them up. No, some of you, you just didn't live. I'm sorry, we're trying to get you there in life. You know, mixtapes were to help us angsty kids process these brand new emotions. You know, it's like our first crush. We couldn't talk to mom, we couldn't talk to dad, but I'll tell you who really helped us through it was Ario Speedwagon, right? You remember him? Remember this? Remember this song? I mean. All of a sudden we had words for it. I, I, mean, I mean, now we knew what to write, you know, you know to her. I, I can't fight this feeling anymore. I know this just came to me. I, I can't fight this feeling anymore, this kind of thing. And, and it was just kind of this wild thing. But then every sweet little love that blossoms, there's something, some poison gets in, and all of a sudden a rose and a thorn, and you'd have to turn to this rock band to kind of tell you about, you remember this one? Come on, choir. Come on, choir. Okay. So... So that was kind of the way it was. And, and everybody had their different songs on it and all of that. And I, I could go forever and, and tell you all about these. I've, I've got 10 I could play right now, but I'm not gonna tell you all of them. Because my point is that we like songs for a reason. We like songs because they tell a story. We love songs when we find that they're telling our story. We like songs that tell stories, but we love songs 
that in some way help tell our story or make sense of our story, that gives texture and structure to our emotions, that help us put in words important things that seemingly are just beyond our ability to find words for. That's what Victor Hugo, he, he said that music is basically there to help us say what most of us can't say on our own. And the reason that I tell you all about this is because oftentimes we forget that tucked away in the middle of our Bible is an anthology of ancient songs. Uh, songs that were the actual hymn book of the nation of Israel. Uh, we call it the book of Psalms. Uh, it's actually a book of poetry, it's a book of lyrics, and they were put to music, and they were sung by choirs, and sung by soloists, and, and they were songs and poetry. They're among some of the oldest poetry in all of the world, and for you know, my estimation, it's among some of the best poetry in all of the world. So when you think about the book of Psalms, think about songs, and, and think about songs that tell a story, and that's kind of where our study begins, by understanding that Psalms are songs, and in those songs are the stories of our lives. That's the reason we love them. That's the reason many of us have parts of the Psalms committed to memory. Uh, these Psalms are full of passion and power. I mean, you pick up the book of Psalms and it's just passion on one page, power on the other. On one page, you'll have horrendous misery and it's like, oh my goodness. And then on the next page, it's unrestrained joy. Uh, the songs are tender, but yet there's a backbone of resilience. And in those songs, we find con consistent reasons, good reasons, to have stubborn, rebellious hope. Uh, the part of the Psalms that we love, and we may not think about this, is that they're brutally honest. I mean, where do most of us go to get brutal honesty these days? The media, what, our favorite commentator, the newspaper, where, where do you go to get brutal honesty these days? It, there's hardly any place you can go just to get the brutal, honest set of facts. But the Psalms, it's just brutal honesty because it's the full spectrum of human emotion. There's no sugar coating, no pie in the sky. On one hand, you've got joy, and one hand, you've got tears. Why? Because that's your life. That's my life. There's joy and there's tears. There's hope, and then there's moments of despair. There's both. There's mountaintops and there's valleys low. That's all of our experience. There's moments of big faith and there's moments of little faith. Two thirds of the Psalms are laments or complaints upset about the way the world is, upset about the way things are going, upset about who did this or who didn't do that, who's getting blessed and who's not. That's the reason we love the Psalms because there's real emotion tied to a real event that we can relate to. That's why the scriptures are a big deal. That's why you should have a time, we should all have a time where we are reading the scriptures and specifically the book of Psalms because it's so accessible to all of us. And that's why we're gonna spend the next few weeks talking about them. And we're gonna try to look at the best that the Psalms have to offer, though we could do that for the next year and barely scratch the surface. But today I wanna show you one of my favorite Psalms. It's a psalm that I've kept coming back to over and over and over again in my life because I, I feel like in the lines of this song, I find my, my life story and in, in, in between the lines of this song, I, I see so much of my life play out. And in this particular psalm, Psalm 103, I believe that this particular psalm positions us for the season that we're getting ready to walk into. Uh, the season of the year when gratitude takes center stage, the, the time of the year when we get challenged to be present, not to be scattered, not to be so busy, but to be present. Uh, the time of the year that says, hey, you need to change your mindset, you need to adjust your attitude, you need to reflect more, you, you need to take in the good, you need to resist those toxic emotions, uh, you need to celebrate, you need to celebrate what is good about life and what is good specifically about your life. 
And it's Psalm 103. Psalm 103 reminds us that if you want to be happy, and, and we all do, right? We all want to be happy, that if you want to be happy, you start with gratitude. That, that's really one of the secrets of life that it's just so elementary, but we neglect it and we ignore it. That if you want to be happy, if you want to be happier, you just start with gratitude. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I love to read after, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that, that it is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. Uh, somebody else I was reading after a few months ago, I can't remember who it was, but they said that until you learn to speak the language of gratitude, you'll never be on speaking terms with happiness. Gratitude is a big deal. And the author of Psalms is reminding us that if you wanna be happy, start with being grateful. And the author is David, the shepherd who became a king, a man whose life had bitterness and sweetness, a man who at times stood tall and a man at times who got laid low. A man who had great faith, but also a man who at times had great sin. A man who left very few of life's rocks unturned. And maybe towards the end of his life, maybe in a contemplative moment, a reflective season, he picks up his pen and he can't really make sense of how he feels. He can't really make sense of his thoughts. So he does what songwriters do. He does what poets do. What he can't speak, what he can't find words to, he he creates a melody, he creates lyrics, he creates rhyme and rhythm. And he begins to put it on paper. And, and this is what he says. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. Many of you have heard these words before. Praise the Lord, my soul. And all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Some of us remember the older version. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. And what's interesting is David's not talking to us. David is not even talking to the nation of Israel as the king of Israel. He's talking to himself. He's trying to scotch himself up. He's talking to himself as a father would talk to a son or as a coach would talk to a player. He's trying to motivate himself. He's trying to inspire himself. He's trying to call himself to action. And this is something very important that all of us really need to know how to do. Let's talk to ourselves. Because there's times that we're gonna have to do the very same thing that David is modeling in this moment. There's gonna be times in your life, there's gonna be times in my life when there's not gonna be anybody there to say to you what you need to hear. There's not gonna be anybody around who knows what you need to hear. And it's in that moment that we need to relearn the lost art of talking to ourselves, speaking truth to ourselves, talking to ourselves as a father would a son or a mother would a daughter or as a coach would a player, as a general would a soldier. Because sometimes the person that we need to hear the truth from most is not our wife, it's not our husband, it's not our friend, it's ourselves. And sometimes the last person that we hear the truth from is ourselves. We will be the person who stands up last to lie, to rationalize, to justify, to explain away, to create some alternative reality but the person that all of us need to learn to hear the truth from most, I think, is ourselves. Because sometimes we are the only ones who can speak some sense into our thinking. We're the only ones who can call ourselves off of the proverbial ledge. You're the only person sometimes who can speak clarity to your situation. Who can speak to the whole picture because you are the only one who knows the whole picture. And so David, he learned to talk to himself and he says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. He's talking to himself. And this is something that I think he learned to do. And for those of you who like to take notes and study the scripture, you can jot it down and you can go back and read it later. 
But he learned to do this, in my opinion, in 1 Samuel chapter 30 at verse 6. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David and all of his men of renown, they're fighting this battle against the Amalekites. But as they are out fighting the Amalekites, some of the Amalekites have slipped behind them and have attacked their village. And in the village where they left their wives and their sons and their daughters, the children. And so the Amalekites, they storm the village, they burn the village to the ground and they kidnap the women and the children. When David and his men return, they find the village has been decimated. The village is smoldering. It's in ruins. And it says in that moment that David and his men, that they wailed and they cried until there were no more tears. And then David's men, his friends, his trusted companions, they begin to turn on him. And they begin to whisper and they begin to say, David, you should have been smarter you should have anticipated this. You should have seen this coming. And this wouldn't have happened if we hadn't have been here with you. And somehow you're responsible for all of this. And they started talking of stoning David. And in that moment, David had nobody else, nobody in his corner. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Because sometimes there won't be anybody else there. There won't be anybody else who will speak you words of encouragement or words of truth, or words that lift you up. Sometimes we have to learn how to remind ourselves that God is in control and that this is gonna be okay. God is gonna work this out for his glory and for my good. We've gotta be able to talk to ourselves. Sometimes we have to talk ourselves out of quitting when we're thinking about quitting. Sometimes we gotta talk ourselves to stand back up when we've fallen down or, or to keep on going when we fall, you know, we feel like we've gotten stuck. And this kind of self-talk, it requires something really important, that few people will have the maturity to actually obtain. It's self-awareness. David was paying attention to his life. He was paying attention to his thoughts. He was paying attention to his emotions. He was paying attention to the, the migration of his heart. He was paying attention to what was deep down there in his heart and his soul. Beneath all the exterior, beneath all of that, he paid attention to that nagging nudge, that little thing that just kept coming back and poking him and poking him, that thing he couldn't get away from, that, that thought that he couldn't shake. And he saw something in himself that few of us will ever rarely see in ourselves because we lack the self-awareness. But David saw something in himself and he didn't like it. And what he saw was this right here. He saw ingratitude. He didn't like it and who would? But somewhere, somehow along the way, David realized that he had become ungrateful. Maybe he said thank you, he went to the temple, he offered sacrifices, he sang the songs, but somewhere along the way he realized it was just lip service. It was just a habit. Somehow his heart had grown ungrateful. That his heart, it was haunted with ingratitude. Somewhere along the way, somehow, this shepherd boy that had become the king of Israel had Become ungrateful for it all. Maybe, maybe he just got in the habit of thinking the way some of us get in the habit of thinking sometimes. Maybe he looks around and he thinks about the fact that he earned his own way, right? He worked hard to get there. I mean, he paid the piper. I mean, he's been in lots of tough situations. There's been blood, sweat, and tears, and he worked hard, and here he is, and maybe he thought somewhere along the way that he earned it all. Now, I'm all for celebrating good work. Everybody ought to work hard. Everybody ought to have a good work ethic. And it's okay 
to honor a good work ethic. And it's okay to have a good sense of pride, a healthy sense of pride about work ethic. But the moment that feeling good about how we got to where we are, that we are somehow responsible for how we got to where we are, that we earned it, that somewhere along the way we were smarter, we were more gifted, that we knew more, we figured it out faster, that we were willing to do what nobody else was willing to do. And somehow we start believing that we are where we are because we got there all by ourselves. That's the moment that we have edged gratitude out of our heart and arrogance has taken hold. That's the moment that says, look what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look how savvy I am. Look how smart that I am. Look at the risk I was willing to take. Instead of realizing that every good thing had come from the hands of God himself. And maybe David got to that moment and he began to think that he got to where he was all by himself and He'd left his father's pasture field and now he's in a good place, a great place, a place of favor and prosperity and abundance. And he's thinking, I've let myself think that I'm responsible. And he doesn't like that ingratitude. So he writes it down. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. Get in it, get in the game. Get up off the chair. Open up your mouth, David. Start being grateful for all this goodness in your life. Praise his holy name. He's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, forget not all of his benefits. David, it's like you've forgotten, man. It's like you've just gotten numb to all of this. It's like you've got so busy and so distracted doing this and doing that that you, you've just gotten away from being at all with where you are and with what you've got. You, you, you've lost the ability to celebrate it. You no longer feel it. It's just, it's common to you now. It's just your life. It's just, it's what you wake up and do day in and day out. It's where you wake up. It's what you drive. It's where you go. It's the money in the account. It's always there. And it's kind of edged out the, the gratitude for all that goodness. And it reminds us that gratitude is not a habit that's easily cultivated. Let me tell you what's easily cultivated is a habit of complaining, grumbling. I don't like this and I don't like that. And they change, uh, she'd do this and if he'd do that and if the kids and if the house and if the car and if those things, that's what comes natural to us. But gratitude, and David knows this, he's thinking about this, he's talking to himself and he's got all of the history of his own life and all the history of his people Israel to lean on. I mean, this was the story of Israel, ingratitude. They get rescued from Egypt. In Egypt, they were what? Slaves. They get rescued out, now they're free. And as soon as they leave Egypt, what do they do? They celebrate, they're grateful, they sing a song, they worship. That lasts about a New York minute. Next thing, we're hungry. We're hungry. Okay, God says, okay, I'm gonna give you bread from heaven. Woo, bread from heaven, wow. And we don't like it. Can we have something else? We, we really love those melons down in Egypt. Boy, those were the best melons we've ever had. Garlic, garlic, do you remember the garlic down in, I'd be a slave again for that garlic, would you? Oh, I loved it down there, it was great, it was wonderful. Complain, 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 they go to Sinai. God shows up, lightning, thundering. The whole nation of Israel, they fall to their face. It's the greatest thing ever. God is so good, God is so great. Let's worship God. They get bored a few days later. They needed something shiny and new, so they built a golden calf. Because what was extraordinary, it became ordinary fast. What was wonderful just became common fast. What was amazing 
was just life, fast. And it's their story. And it's our story. Think of the things that used to amaze you. The goodness that you were just struck by, you shed tears about, you said, thank you, God, you just, you just couldn't get over it. But now it's just kind of common. It's just kind of average. It's just life now. It needs to be something shiny. It needs to be something new, bigger, better, further. To move the needle at all, if it moves the needle at all anymore. And for 40 years, they complained, they complained, they complained, they complained, they complained. And right up before they move into the land of promise, Moses, he warns them and he says, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, beware when you go into the land of promise, that when you get over there and you're living in houses you didn't build and you're drinking water from wells you didn't dig, beware that you forget, that you forget, because you can forget what God has done for you. You can forget the goodness. You can forget the blessing. And if you let it, the blessing, the blessing can become a burden. The blessing can become, God forbid, a liability. I'm 43 years old. I'm beginning to think that Chuck Swindoll and some of the men that I read after earlier in life, they were right when they said, it's not the adversity that challenges us most. It's those areas of prosperity that challenges us most. It's the prosperity that brings options. And with options come distractions. And with distractions, sometimes our hearts can drift. And so now they're living in a land of prosperity and milk and honey and what did they do? They forgot. They looked up one day and they said, look at these houses we've built. They didn't build those houses. Isn't this the greatest water? Well, we built these wells. No, they didn't. And this was Moses' advice, and this is David's point. Don't get so caught up in the grind of life that you lose sight of the good in life. Don't get so busy and so scattered and going through the motions that you, you miss the opportunity to be grateful. David's talking to himself. He's saying, self, be grateful. So then he begins to rehearse, and he begins to say, okay, I need to, I need to, I need to write some things down that I'm grateful for. And, and so he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord on my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who? Forgives all my sins. And David reminds himself that God had forgiven him of all his sins. Don't miss that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, never pretend to be, but I'm telling you, I've researched it, I've Googled it. All means all. Don't just read past it casually. David, God has forgiven you all your sin. And if you're looking for a place to embrace gratitude, just start there. God has forgiven me of all my sin. All the silly, stubborn, should have known better, but didn't know better. All the things that I shouldn't have done, but did. All of the things that I should have done, but didn't. All of the repeated offenses. God, I'll never do that again. God, I'm gonna stop that. God, I'm gonna walk away from that. God, I'm sorry if you just not let that happen. And if that don't fight, get foul, God, I promise. David said he's forgiven us all of our sin because that's who he is. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's what he's done. And for those of us who've blown it big time over the course of our lives, for those of us who've messed up time and time again over the course of our lives, this is good news. This is good news. 
that Christ, he died for not some of my sins, most of my sins, but he died for all of my sins. He died on the cross in my place for my sin so that I could be forgiven of all of my sin, past, present, future. Because when Christ died for us, our generation, all of our sin was future. Philip Yancey said that God took a great risk when he announced our forgiveness ahead of time. See, when we talk like this, people get, un, people get unsettled because they're like, well, if you talk about that kind of grace, if you talk about that kind of forgiveness, people are gonna feel like they can just live ever how they want to. Sure they will. There will be people who wanna take advantage of God. There's people who wanna take advantage of you. You've taken advantage of things before. But this is the type of grace that doesn't take us to the place where we wanna take advantage of it. David's point is it takes us to a place where we're grateful for it, where we wanna to respond to it in a way that is good in a way that brings our life into alignment with the God who forgave us to begin with. The Bible says that not only are all forgiven, but it's all forgotten, that he cast it into the depths of the sea. Isaiah said that he threw it behind his back, he sees it no more. You ever gotten mad at somebody, offended at somebody, and you forgave them, but on occasion, on occasion you'd look at them, bam, you'd see it all over again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like, you know, you've forgotten it, you thought you'd forgotten it, you've forgiven them, all of a sudden you look at them, there it is again, and you just gotta, you had to go back through the thing again. You had to talk yourself through the forgiveness again. Think about this, when God looks at you and God looks at me, he has never once looked at us through that sin, not one time. When he forgave it, he forgot it. He put it out of his sight, and now when he sees us, as Paul would say, he sees us justified, just as if, we had never sinned, and just as if we had always obeyed. I'm telling you, that is something to be grateful for. And that type of thinking, that type of gratitude, let me tell you what else it will do. It will keep us from being self-righteous. When we're grateful for all the sin and the junk and the trash that we've been forgiven for, you know what it takes out of our hand? The stone that we wanna throw at somebody else because of their sin. Because when I rehearse the fact of all the sin that I've been forgiven for, all the thoughts, all the words, all the things that I wanted to do but was afraid to do, but if I had the chance, I would have done, and all that stuff, I'm reminded of who in the heck am I to pick up a stone and throw at anybody? I am a sinner, and so are they. And I just happen to be a sinner who is saved by the grace of God. That's the only thing I've got going for me as a sinner saved by the grace of God. David says, that's something to be grateful for. He, he doesn't stop there. He says, who heals all of your diseases. Now, I gotta point this out because I'm moving on. A lot of people take this verse and say, God absolutely promises to heal of all your diseases. And, and it's taken totally out of context. And you know that's not true. God doesn't heal all physical disease. God can heal any physical disease when it lines up with his will and purpose, but God doesn't heal every physical disease. But who is David talking to in this Psalm? He started off by talking to his soul. Bless the Lord on my soul. And now he says that soul, he heals you of all your diseases. Because wherever there has been sin, wherever there is sin, there's residue, there's junk. Beneath the surface, beneath the exterior, beneath the facade, there, there's a soul that's diseased by things like guilt and shame and despair and envy and a lack of trust and an inability to trust and inability to show emotions, anger, self-hatred. It just keeps on going. And David's trying to be grateful for the fact that not only will God forgive you of your sin, 
But God can get you past your sin. And God can move you past your past. You don't have to get hung up with all that junk in the trunk. He can take care of the residue that's left behind of sins that have been forgiven and forgotten. He moves on, he says, who redeems your life from the pit? And the pit was a place of loneliness and hopelessness and self-centeredness because when you hurt, don't ever forget this. When you're in pain, when you're hurting, it's really difficult for you to think about anybody else but you. So don't be so hard on people who are hurting who can only think about themselves because when you are hurting, it's really hard to think about anybody else when you're in pain. And when you're in the place of the pit, it's lonely, it seems hopeless. But David reminds himself that God redeems and God salvages and God restores and God mends what's broken and he buys back what's been sold out and he brings good out of the bad and he creates beauty out of the ashes. I think of David, he, he goes back and he thinks about those moments where he went too far. When he sank too low, he said too much. He did too much. And he remembers the times in his life where his sin left him alone, hurting, afraid, in the pit. And he remembers where he's sitting at in that moment. That God has brought him all the way to the palace. That God's brought him all the way into the place of his purpose and his destiny. That God redeemed what had been lost. God redeemed what was seemingly too broke to be used. And this is the story all through the scriptures. It's Rahab, it's a prostitute in Jericho who encounters God and all of a sudden she becomes one of the great grannies of Jesus. That's redemption. A life that seems lost, that's redeemed, that's brought into the family of God. It's Joseph, hated by his dysfunctional family, his brothers, left in a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, left behind who's promoted to prime minister of Egypt and says what the enemy meant for evil, God used it for good. You know what you call that? Redemption. It's Job who lost everything, his wealth, his health, his children. But yet he, he was able to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name either way because he knows the way that I take. And when I come forth, because I will come forth, when I come forth, I will come forth as gold, as it has been tried in the fire. That's redemption. That God is able to redeem your pain and bring a purpose out of it. God is able to redeem our sin and bring a story out of it. God is able to redeem the lost years, the wasted opportunities, the broken relationships. God's able to redeem it. He brings us out of the pit, he crowns us with love and compassion, loving kindness, tender mercies. He brings us out of the pit, nasty, muddy, but he brings us close enough to himself to crown us. David says, I look back and for every act of guilt, there was a divine act of grace. For every stupid mistake and mess up, there was mercy. I think Paul may have had this in the back of his mind when he said, I look back over my life and when I look back over my shoulder and I looked into the rearview mirror, I'm telling you, it's, it's nasty back there. It's ugly back there. 
where Sid didn't abound. And it, oh, I'm telling you, if you knew my story, if you knew where I've been, if you know what I've done, if you know what I've wanted to do, if you knew what I almost did, I'm telling you, where sin did abound, Paul went a little further and says, I've discovered that grace did much more abound. It was Jeremiah who said, it has been by the Lord's mercies that I have not been consumed. They are new, fresh every day. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. Even when I was faithless, even when I was unfaithful, he was faithful to me. He is satisfied. This is good. He has satisfied my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. He satisfied me like no thing and no person could. Now, this is good. He talks about eagles and being renewed. Let me talk to those of you who are a little bit distinguished in years. You got the color of wisdom on the top of your head. Eagles go through a process called molting. Basically where they grow new feathers for every new season of their life. They're always growing new feathers for new seasons of their life. For those of you who are growing older, let me remind you what Psalm 92 verse two says. For those who are planted in the house of the, of the Lord, they shall flourish and they shall bring forth fruit in their old age and they shall be fat and they shall flourish. Let me tell you what you can be grateful for. God's not done with you. God's not finished with you. You're not done. We need your friendship. We need your encouragement. We need your example. We need your voice. We need you helping us to avoid the pitfalls that you stepped into that you can avoid in the next generation by helping those who are coming behind you. The good news that you can be grateful is you're getting new feathers so that you can soar higher and better David, he wraps it all up and he puts, puts a big bow on it. And this is where we ended. He's talking to himself about how to be grateful. And then he just kind of camps out and he starts thinking about God. And he says, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. I want us all to read this out loud together. Okay, let's do it on three. One, two, three. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Exodus 33, 34. This is how God introduced himself to Moses. Moses, this is who I am. I'm the God who's compassionate, who won't give up on you, who's patient with you. I'm the God who is gracious. I will give to you what you do not deserve. I am slow to anger. I, I'm not like a lot of earthly mothers and fathers. I'm not easily triggered. I'm not like that. I'm abounding in love, unfailing love, unending love, unrivaled love, unconditional love kindness and mercy. David realized, like many of us have, that when I fail, God's love never fails. When I failed, God's love never has once failed me. You know how I know? He does not treat me as my sins deserve. He does not repay me according to my iniquities. Your heavenly father holds no grudges. He keeps no scorecard. He harbors no resentment. He doesn't throw it back in your face the morning after because his mercies are new every morning. He doesn't haunt you with yesterday's screw up. It seems that God is more willing to forgive than sometimes we are to be forgiven. 
This is mercy and grace. This is mercy that God withholds what I do deserve. And it's grace that he gives me what I do not deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's vertical infinity, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, horizontal infinity. So far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He is the father in the story that Jesus told about the prodigal who went away and came again. And his father met him with an open arm and an open hand to say, welcome home, come on in, let's celebrate. Our gratitude, if you're ready to embrace it, our gratitude begins with God. That's what we learn. Our gratitude begins with God. If you wanna be grateful, if you wanna be more grateful, just start with God, his love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his faithfulness, his patience, his long suffering. Our gratitude begins with God, but our gratitude then extends to people. When it begins with God, it extends to people. You'll find yourself better suited to say thank you. I appreciate you. You don't know how much you mean to me. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever told you how much our friendship means. You'll find yourself able to extend gratitude to people when it begins with God. And then we realize that gratitude is a step towards peace and joy. David is fighting for peace and joy in this Psalm and he does so with gratitude. It's the highest form of thought. It's what helps us escape the undertow of life that pulls us towards the negative stuff, the toxic stuff. It's what helps us elevate and amplify the good and suppress the bad to keep our eyes on what is good. It's the choice we make to savor what is good, to celebrate what is good, to celebrate that it came from the hand of God himself, to not take any of it for granted. The next month, which begins tomorrow, tomorrow will mark 25 days until Thanksgiving. And here's what I wanna ask you to do. Here's what I wanna challenge you to do. I wanna challenge all of you, all of you men, all of you ladies, all of you students. I want you sometime today I, to type it in your phone or write it out, but I want you to think of things that you are grateful for in your life. And I want you to begin with God. And then I want you to extend it to people. And I want you to write down their names and I want you to write down those things. And I, I want you to be as descriptive as you can be. And then for the next 25 days, beginning tomorrow, I want you to spend a little bit of the first moments of your day with your voice saying, thank you. And to name those things one by one. And when you get the opportunity for the people on that list, tell them. And for the next 25 days, for those 25 days leading up to Thanksgiving, to, to make it a habit of gratitude and see if it doesn't change your life. See if it'll be true that you'll never regret being grateful. Today, let's start with being thankful for the mercies of God, that he has forgiven us all of our sins, healed us of all of our soul's diseases, Celebrate the fact that by his mercies, we have not been consumed. 
when I think about where I could be and when I think about who I could be, it has been by his mercies that I've not been consumed. The things that I've gotten myself into and the things that I've said yes to, the habits, all the stuff, it's been by his mercies that I've not been consumed because great is his faithfulness. I'm grateful for the fact that when I was dead in my sins, it was God rich in mercy with the great love wherewith he loved me made me alive in Christ Jesus. By grace have I been saved. Not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but by his mercy, I have been saved and I have been cleansed. And it is by his mercies that he calls me to present myself a living sacrifice to him, holy, acceptable. Father, may gratitudes grip our heart. May gratitude surface May it begin in this moment. May it carry over for the next 25 days, God, beginning in the morning. I pray we won't miss this opportunity. I pray we'll take it serious. I pray that we'll make that commitment. God, I'm gonna embrace a brand new lifestyle of gratitude. I'm gonna make a step towards peace and joy. And I'll do it right now. I'll do it in this place. I'll do it in this moment. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,